going through a series right now on the Ten Commandments. And uh, this morning I'm calling uh, this message the image and the name. The image and the name. Um, there are uh, some, some um, quotes I shared uh, once before. I love them. They, they just really kind of encompass the Ten Commandments. Man is an able creature, one author said, but he has made about 32,600,000 laws and hasn't yet improved upon the Ten Commandments. Am I saying amen to that? We've staked the whole of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government. And, the, and upon the capacity for each and all of us to govern ourselves and to control ourselves and to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. How many know that that was the person who said that was the father of our Constitution? Huh. James Madison said that. Somebody didn't tell him about ch- the separation of church and state. Yeah. Um, Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. <laughs> they may be multiple guests, but they're not multiple choice. Uh, no man, I like G.K. Chesterton, always know how to spin a word. He says, no man can break any of the Ten Commandments. He can only break himself against them. And this kind of insight is that these aren't about rules for us to break or not break. They're about how we can live the fullness of what God has for us. And that takes us to the, the, this next quote. This is the way we're to think about the Ten Commandments. Not as cramping restrictions on a fullness of life, that we might otherwise uh, have enjoyed, but as the very gateway to the fullness we seek. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 119. It's the most amazing psalm that talks about the word of God, the law of God, over and over, reflections on it. And it says this, and it's counterintuitive. Listen to these words. It says, I realize that everything has its limits, but your commands are beyond full comprehension. Do you get what he's saying? It's just the opposite of what we think. We think, well, the laws and the rules of God, they're the limiting thing. They bound us in. That's not what he's saying. He said, listen, everything on this world has a point in which it stops, it ends, it's complete, and it's over. It's the word of God that keeps going on. The commands of God that carry us to eternity. A very different way about thinking about God's commands. That's in the Psalms. So, The Ten Commandments as a whole, as we consider them, as we think about them, as we get into them, what are they? They reveal the character and nature of God. They're not above Him. They're not below Him. They are the extension of who He is. They're given directly by God. Listen, God spoke these. This wasn't a, this wasn't face to face to Moses. This wasn't a vision to a prophet. This wasn't inspiration in the writings. It was God Himself speaking. And when He did it, His voice was so terrifying, the people said, okay, no more. It was literally the beginning and the foundation of all of the scriptures. Everything written in the scriptures after that was after the moment God spoke. This is the beginning point. They, they, uh, until, until, Jesus came in the flesh. They are literally the greatest expression of God's self-revelation. They reveal God's character and nature. They're given directly by God. They're based on creation. And we're going to spend some time unpacking that this morning. It is so important to understanding them. They, um, they reveal, they create a covenant constitution for Israel. When Israel was a creation event coming out of Exodus, God created a nation and he presents to them a covenant relationship by which they can establish themselves as a nation on earth, as his nation on earth. And finally, they mediate a personal relationship with God 
and provide universal moral ideals for social well-being. That's absolutely fascinating. You think I know it's a lot of big words, but think about it for a minute. On the one side, they're a constitution for an entire nation. On the other side, they mediate a personal relationship between you and God personally. All of the yous in the Ten Commandments are you singular. You singular. It's the way, the way that a nation as a whole reflects God is when all the people reflect God. Well, that should tell us about the kingdom of God, period. And they provide a universal moral ideals for social well-being. Do you want to know how to bring social well-being? Bring the kingdom of God. When you bring the kingdom of God, you bring his nature. When you bring his nature, you bring those things that extend for his nature, the Ten Commandments. So, we look at the Ten Commandments. There's a chart of them here. Um, so, uh, there, there's a couple of different traditions about how uh, how they're numbered because they don't actually say this is number one, this is number two. So different different uh, different traditions will group them differently. But um, what we've been what we've considered so far is uh, I am Yahweh your God. It's a statement of faith by which we embrace our Lord. We're made righteous before Him. What did he do? He brought us out of slavery. He brought Israel out of Egypt. He brought us out of sin and death. It's literally a creation event. I am Yahweh your God. What else have we considered? You shall have no other gods before me. It is a marriage covenant language. We are what? To forsake all others. Anybody heard those language before? To have no other gods is to forsake all others. Before me literally means in his presence. There is not a place we can go. The psalmist says, should I go to the heavens? Should I go to the pit of death? I can't escape your presence. We shall, have, we shall forsake all others. And so this morning, we're going to consider, you shall not make an image and you shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. They go together. You shall not make an image and you shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. So the, the, the Ten Commandments, you can go to the next uh, chart. Um, are actually have three sections to them. So if you look at the first section, um, it, it's about your relationship with God. I am Yahweh your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image. You shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. Then there's the fourth, the, the well, depending on how you number them, the fourth commandment, that's a transition commandment. Uh, remember the Sabbath. And then you have the, the last set that's about a relationship with other, others. Now, I want you to notice something here. This is not an accidental way this is put together. And it's going to play right into where we're going this morning. Take a look at something. This uh, relationship we have with other is in descending offense to us being in the image and bearing the name of God. Think about it. Honor your father and mother is number one. Why? Because that's where you get the understanding to be the image of God and to bear his name. Uh, you shall not murder. Why? Because you are killing the image of God when you do. You shall not commit adultery. Why? Because you are breaking through the very covenant relationship that establishes the image of God on this earth. You shall not steal. Why? Because you are taking from the image of God in someone else. You shall not bear false witness. Why? Because you are... You are tearing down the image of God by lying about it about someone else. You shall not covet. In other words, it even goes to the point of your motives and how you deal with the image of God in the world. Is that not amazing? That's not accidental. So these commandments, these two that we're looking at this morning, uh, um, that we're taking together, you shall not make an image and you shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. These, These are connected together. 
image, the images reflect creation. Bearing, uh, to be his imager reflects creation. Bearing his name reflects being a new creation. Not making an image of what? Of creation. Why? Because you're to bear his name and be a new creation. That's where we're going to go with this. So in order to do this, we need to go ahead and take a look at creation. We're going to go back to creation. Um, if you want to understand the Ten Commandments, you have to put them in the context of creation. Moses actually wrote the creation narrative for us after God gave the Ten Commandments. Now, in the ancient world, there were a lot of different myths that attempted to explain creation. And in most of those myths, you had a battle of the gods. You had this great abyss, this sea abyss, and these gods would battle it out, and the good gods would beat the bad gods, and that's how we got order out of chaos. And, um, and so all of these, it's interesting, when you go back to these stories and you look at the story, you look at the creation story that Moses wrote, he point for point polemically addresses all of these stories. Except, except instead of it being these fantastical stories, it is a straightforward theology. It wasn't your gods, it was Yahweh. It wasn't a great battle, it was his word. And ultimately, what all of creation was created to glorify him, and we were created to be imagers in it. And he is literally responding to all the stories in the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, all of the stories start out with this, this preconditional understanding of the universe. The earth, earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What, what the understood, the picture in your mind was to have this picture of what's called third evil. What is third evil? Think tornadoes, hurricanes, storms, place that life can't exist. It's dangerous to life. And there is this pre-mortal condition in which there's darkness, there's light. You have uh, without, when he says without form, it means utter chaos, no shape. When it says void, it means empty of all life. When it says darkness, I mean, Picture, we, we went to a cavern one time. Anybody ever been to a cavern? You go down to caves, you go down in these caves, and they saw everybody freeze, okay, and then hold on to something or whatever, and they turn the lights out, and you can't see your hand right here. That kind of darkness, no light whatsoever. There is, uh, and, and that word deep and waters literally refer to the understood and a bottomless abyss. This is where we get the word abyss from, this deep sea. And so it's into this picture, this third evil that God speaks. It's the word of God that creates life. It's the word of God that bounds third evil. No, it's, it's the word of God that's eternal, that overcomes. So what, he, what does he do with light? I mean, with darkness, he speaks light. And he says, darkness, you can go this far and no more. You can only be here at night, and now we have light. He speaks to the chaotic abyss. And what does he say? He speaks to that abyss and he splits it in two. And land comes up. He puts the firmament over. And, and he takes this abyss that is third evil and he says, guess what? Water from that abyss is going to fall and create life on the earth. He speaks to the empty void. And what happens? God, life begins to fill the earth. Plants come up. Fruit trees come up. Sun, the moon, and the stars give us seasons for life. Living creatures, great and small, are in the waters. Winged birds are in the heavens. Livestock, beasts on the earth. These are all life forces of creation. Pay attention to that. It's going to make it be important as we get into this. All God creates, all of these life forces of creation. And finally, God creates mankind. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So mankind was meant to image God, to be his God's imagers, to be God's imagers. What does that mean? To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That empty void, we're to fill it. We're to bring his light. We're to bring his love. We're to bring his life. To subdue and dominion, we're to confront the chaos just like God did. We're to bring godly order. We're to destroy the works of the devil as Christ did. We're to be, carry on the work he begun, not by ourselves, but in conjunction with him. All right. So we've looked at creation a bit. Now we're going to look at these commandments. You shall not make an image and you shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. How does this creation fit in here? So Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in earth beneath. So don't make a carved image of anything that looks like something in heaven above or earth beneath that's or that's under the water. What do we just hear in creation? Heaven above, earth on top, under the water. Notice how it's tying to creation. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, Pastor Herson went over that second part, but the images is what we're going to focus on. Why no image? Well, first of all, let me say this. It's not talking about artwork. I've heard people say, well, that means we can't have artwork. You know, the, the Bible is literally filled with artwork. You have cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, on the curtains, in the Holy of Holies. You got almond flower cups on the lampstands. You got buds. You got blossoms. You got pomegranates. You got bulls. You got lions. You got palm trees. I mean, there's all kinds of artwork in throughout the temple and all, all places in the scripture. And you never see a prophet anywhere come down on Israel because they had artwork. That's not the point. It's not about artwork. I know there's some artists in here going, yes. Right, Drea? Anyway. Why did the ancient world make images into gods? That's what we have to ask. Why did they do it? Well, the ancient world, what, what they wanted to do is they literally wanted to reproduce the living forces of nature, the birds, the animals, the storms, the sun, all these things, into physical representations. Why? They would call it a god so that they could control the forces of nature. You see, if it's all out there, I'm going to create this image here, this idol, and I'm going to, uh, uh, my, my goal is that, the, that, that my God will embody that, and now that it's embodied, I can control it. But do you see what's wrong with that logic? The moment you've done that, you've literally subverted the order of creation. You just turned it on its head. Uh, what, how do we do that? What did creation actually teach us? This is, let us make man after our image, after our likeness. Let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heaven, etc. Right? We just read that. So, our dominion over the created order doesn't come by making, by making an image and bowing down to it. You don't get dominion when you make an image and you bow down to it. What happens? You just gave dominion of the image over you. 
And the very thing you were trying to do to control what's around you, you actually give up the very thing you had to bring dominion to it. Do you see what making the image does? You are subverting the created order itself. By making an image of a living force in order to control it, we give up, we giving, we end up giving control over us. Instead of having dominion, we're giving dominion. That's what sin does. Remember the Lord talking to Cain? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting there. But you must rule over it. Its desire is for you. But here's the thing. Because we can look back and go, well, we, you know, we don't make images of animals. We're not bowing down to animals and all these other things. Today. Well, in fact, there are those who do. That is still very much active in many places in the world. But we actually do the same thing in, in another way. We make images all the time. And I, I would guarantee you, you couldn't go a day without them. They're on our phones. They're on our billboards. They're on our computers. They're on our TVs. They're on our tablets. And we think we're controlling them. But guess what? Try to go without them. What do they do? They tell us what our hopes should be, what our desires should be, what our dreams should be, what success looks like, what will make us happy. They redefine evil. They create non-existent fantasy worlds, and they throw off the boundary, the bounds of the reality of God's word. Okay, let me give you a, a, one that hit me the other day. Anybody like have like you don't have to raise your hand, but you can if you want. Anybody like have a favorite TV show? Thank you. A few honest people here. And I like, like the crime shows. Some people really like the crime shows or some people, you know, favorite story shows you like. Okay. Let me ask you a question. How many of those shows that you watch is God a character in those shows? So what they've done is they've literally created a non-existent fantasy world that doesn't exist. I'm telling you, that's not by accident. It is not by accident. The authors of those are purposely creating a worldview that subverts God. It's, it's, this is not a conspiracy or something like that at all. There's plenty, plenty who are involved in it who will tell you. Plenty. And we watch it and go along with it and, and allow all of that to come into our minds, these images playing over and over. Look, I'm not saying it's wrong to watch one of those. What I'm saying is, what are we bowing down to? What do we pattern our lives over? What do we let influence us? Do we let what is created influence us? Or do we turn to the creator? What image is our God? Because we are inundated with those images nonstop. Nonstop. We think we're controlling them, they're controlling us. I'll prove it to you. This is actual statistical. How many know that 69% of Americans self-identify as Christians? Anybody heard that before? 69% of Americans self-identify as Christians. Only 6% of Americans actually have a biblical worldview. Yeah, only 6%. 88% of Americans, right now, 88% of Americans have no problem believing contradictory, self-refuting, competing opinions about the world around them being correct and true. This is, I, I'm, this is, this has actually been statistically studied and, and proven. We have, this is a quote from George Barna. We have largely abandoned logic and analytical thinking in favor of emotional 
satisfaction. Most people are more interested in a life of comfort and convenience than one of wisdom and righteousness. People are willing to fight. Uh, I'll, I'll just stop right there. That's where we've come to. And I'm, 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 I'm here to say, if 69% of the people self-identify as Christians, only 6% of the, have that worldview, that means that's the church. It's as much in the church as it is in the world. It's real easy for us to say, oh, you know, them over there and their animus thing, I would never bow down to a cow, or I would never worship an owl. I would never lie down to that animal, and yet we're worshiping images all the time. How do we know? Because we take the images around us and exalt them over the Word of God. We're bowing down to the image of this world. How do we know? Because we've literally lost the ability to think as a nation. George Barna said this, and this is, this is him just looking at the stats, just looking at it. He's, this is not meant to be judgmental in any way. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not meant to be indictment. It's just like, here's, here's the facts. Simply and objectively, Christianity in America is rotting from the inside out. The fact is, God has already created his own image. So God created man in his own image. We are the images of God. But we've rejected the image. You see, what we see in America actually just proves the scriptures. It just proves what the scriptures actually say. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made. So they're without excuse. He's saying this, and this is how Paul, every time he went among the Gentiles and preached the gospel, he said, look, this is the God who created everything. He's evident from the beginning. He is evident there is no one lives without excuse of knowing this and see this. He says, the reason why we don't know it and see it is we don't want to. We suppress it. We're just not interested. Well, what's the difference between that? Let me, let me keep reading what he says as a result. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling what? Mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, when most of us read this, what we read is birds and animals and creeping things. We don't read mortal man. Because to exalt ourselves and to exalt all the images we see is the same thing as exalting an animal, a bird, or something else. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Tell me that's not what's happening in our culture. So the evidence is right in front of us. And what difference are we as the church making in that? Or are we becoming like that? I'm asking this globally as we have been called as believers to what? To not bow down to false images. And what did God do about it? God sent his son in the image of man in order to restore to man the image of God. Did you catch that? God sent his son in the... God created us to be his imagers. When we rebelled against it, God sent his son in our image that he might restore to us back to that image. That's cool. That's amazing. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already existed prior to the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. We're back to creation. And without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and He was the light of men. Notice, in the beginning, notice all things created. Notice life, notice light, all of it in the Word of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became a human being. God became the image of man. We call it the incarnation, big fancy word. Colossians, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. When it says he's the firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean God created him. It means two things. It means he is the first to restore the image of God to all of humanity. And he is primary. He, he takes priority. He is over, has all authority over that. Because it goes on to say that everything that was created was created through him and for him. Therefore, for God said, let light shine out of darkness. Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our face, it is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But once again, it's all about creation, light coming out of darkness. Jesus what? Fulfilling the image of God. So where's our hope? Here it is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away has become new. God sent his son in the image of man in order to restore us to his image. Now, the great irony in all of this, this is an amazing irony in all this, is we've, this whole thing is about man taking creation and setting up God's images, taking that which is created and setting it up as our God uh, imagery. And what, what the reality is, this is, when I'll show you this verse here, what the reality is, this creation that's around us that mankind is worshiping, that we all bow down to, uh, we all, not like I'm not saying you personally. I'm saying we as humanity bow down to. That creation is actually waiting for us. Waiting for us to embrace that new creation image of God. Look at this. This is right here. It's in Romans. Check it out. For the creation waits eagerly. Waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Jump down to verse 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait the eager adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Jump down to verse 28. Why? Because we know this, that those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. Why? Because for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, what? To the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn of many brothers. We have the opportunity to be reborn a new creation in Christ. Do not bow down to that image. So what, what is this first, this first commandment here? We are not to make images of gods, turning, gods, turning creation into gods. 
but we're to be God's imagers, reflecting him to all of creation. Did you know, literally, the sun, the moon, the, the, the stars, the trees, the animals, the fish, everything about creation is longing for us to actually take our place, the sons of God. That's what he's saying. It's groaning. It's waiting. The world is under the weight of sin and death. And that weight of sin and death weighs on all of creation, waiting for us to bring the light, the life, and the love of God to this world. There's really cool stories that have to do with this. To talk about communities where for years they were in darkness and the gospel came in. And not only did it change the community and the morality of the community, literally all of nature around it changed. It's just so cool. There's story after story like this. All right. So you shall not make an image and you shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, how many think that have heard that that's about, you know, saying Jesus or God or, you know, OMG? You may have heard that before. Well, only a couple of people? Oh, most, yeah, okay. Most people think that's all about, you know, not, not, not cussing and then putting God's name in there. Like, that's really bad. Well, that's not good. But there's a scholar, her name is Carmen Imes, and she would argue that that's exactly missing the point of this commandment. This commandment defines holy living as opposed to what we don't say with our mouth. That verb, to take, the better way of translating it is to lift up or to bear. As a result, the name command is more about bearing God's name in vain than speaking his name incorrectly. So, short of what's going on with this commandment, what's happening? God just called Israel out of Egypt. He wooed them. He says, I brought you out on eagle's wings. I overpowered uh, Egyptians, showing, uh, showing my power to you over and over and over. I wooed you. I brought you to this place, and I'm telling you right now, you are my treasured possession. You are uh, the, the, the ones that I love. I am going to make you a kingdom, an entire kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. A royal priesthood. And he begins to form this covenant relationship with them. And in so doing, what are they going to do? What happens when you walk forward down the altar? And you stand there and you make a vow before God in heaven. Before man. And you connect yourself for life, forsaking all others to this other person. You take on their name. And he says, don't do that in vain. Don't do that in vain. I will not take it lightly. If you say you're bearing my name and you don't do this with holiness, you don't reflect me with holiness, you don't reflect me in what you're about and what you do and where you go and how you live your life, 
If you call yourself by my name and you do business like the world, you have taken my name in vain. If you call yourself by my name and you don't treat your neighbor with love, you have taken my name in vain. He says, do you want the prime example of what it means to take God's name? The prime example is Jesus himself. Because when Jesus came, he took the name of God. 